Good morning. Uh, this uh, this morning's passage comes from Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everything in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Thanks. Great to be with you. Everyone this morning, um, it's, uh, it's a lot warmer down here than it is up the hill <laughs> for starters and everyone here has been very lovely to me so far so thank you for the nice welcome. Uh, this is the first of several weeks that I believe you're going to be spending looking at um, the Sermon in the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel and it must surely be the most uncomfortable sermon ever preached. It's demanding, it's hard-hitting, it's radically countercultural, um, both for Jesus' hearers back then and for us today as well. Uh, Jesus will tell us that obeying the law isn't enough because the demands of the law go beyond our actions to our very hearts. The law tells us not to murder or commit adultery, uh, but Jesus, he condemns the very lust and anger in our hearts that, that lies at the heart of those sins. Gouge your eye out if it causes you to sin, he'll tell us. Love your enemy, even when he attacks you. Do, do your good deeds without any hypocrisy or any impure motives. Seek treasure in heaven, not riches or security on earth. Trust God to provide for your needs. To be saved, Jesus will say, your righteousness must be greater than that of the impressive religious leaders of the day. And even then, Jesus says, some people will call me Lord, but find out that I never truly knew them. All right, I hope I've whetted your appetite for the coming weeks. It's going to be a good ride. Um, in short, Jesus is calling his followers to be different. He's calling them to be different. Different from the non-religious people who didn't care about God, um, but different also from the religious people who didn't truly understand their need for God and didn't worship him sincerely. There's a discomfort, isn't there, in being different? And so this is an uncomfortable sermon. And it begins in the, the passage we've just read with the calling, the life, and the impact of a disciple of Jesus. So firstly, the calling of a disciple of Jesus, the disciple's calling. 
Uh, we've seen in the previous chapter, so Matthew chapter 4 would have seen last week, that Jesus has begun to preach about the kingdom of heaven. He's calling people to repent. He's teaching. He's healing the sick. He's drawing crowds from up to 100 kilometers away to hear him. Uh, we pick things up this morning in chapter 5, verse 1, where Jesus sees the crowds of people approaching him. And his response, if you notice, is not to teach the crowds, but to teach his disciples. We'll see at the, the end of the sermon that the crowds were listening as he, as he taught his disciples. Um, but Jesus preaches this sermon to his disciples with the crowds in mind. Crowds of people who need to hear the good news that Jesus was proclaiming. So what Jesus is doing here is he's preparing his disciples for mission. And this is, this is the calling of a disciple. It's to, to reach people, to make disciples. Jesus is calling disciples who will be on mission to make more disciples. And I take it that's right at the heart of why Trinity Church Paraka exists. It's why, it's why this church was planted. Because there are hundreds of thousands of people in the northern suburbs of Adelaide who don't know Jesus. And we want to reach them with the gospel. So a disciple who makes disciples. Uh, if you're here this morning and you've, you've put your trust in Jesus, uh, is this your understanding of what it means to follow Jesus? Not just believing in him yourself, but wanting other people to know him as well. See, everything that follows in the Sermon on the Mount, everything that we'll look at today, everything that, that, that you'll look at in the next few weeks, it all has this call to mission in mind. Jesus begins a sermon in, in verse 3 with what we often refer to as the Beatitudes, which they're really they're a portrait of the disciple's life, um, the character of a disciple of Jesus, as well as what motivates them. Now, I gather that you've been studying these verses or, or you're about to start studying these verses in your community groups, going, going through the Beatitudes. And um, what you'll have seen, if, if you're in one of those groups, is that the, the Beatitudes, they're really packed with Old Testament language, um, particularly from the book of Isaiah and, and from the book of Psalms. And so Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's speaking to them in language that they would have been familiar with. And the disciples' life, Jesus says, says two things about it. Firstly, it flows from spiritual poverty. And secondly, it's focused on kingdom blessings. So it's flowing from spiritual poverty and focused on, spiritual, on kingdom blessings. Right, so firstly, flowing from spiritual poverty. Being a disciple, verse 3, begins with being poor in spirit. It means owning our spiritual bankruptcy, knowing that we can't please God ourselves. There's a, there's a broken relationship between us and God because our sinful hearts lead us to want to be our own rulers rather than living under God's good rule. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And because of sin, we, we fall short of who God made us to be. We can never be good enough for God by our own efforts. There's only one thing, one thing that could ever make us right with God. And it's not, it's not something that we can do. It's someone else taking the punishment that our sins deserve so that our guilt before God is removed. Uh, someone, it would have to be someone perfect, someone who wasn't guilty themselves, someone who wasn't full of sin. And that's exactly what happened. On the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sin. He did 
what we needed and he did what we couldn't do. And so the life of a disciple of Jesus before anything else, it's a life lived humbly under God's grace. And when we're talking about grace, we're talking about a free gift. It's something that I haven't done anything to deserve. Because it's only by God's grace, God's grace that he's shown to us through Jesus, that we can come to him. We bring nothing to the table. If you're here this morning, maybe you're here just checking church out, working out what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, Well, this is so important to grasp, that to follow Jesus, it's about living under grace. Um, I'll make a confession here. I have hated every musical I've ever watched with an absolute passion, so no offence to to any musical fans here. The one exception, though, is Les Mis, which I absolutely love. Could watch it every day if I had the time. Um, In many ways, Les Mis is a story about coming to grips with living under grace. Uh, It's set a couple of hundred years ago during the French Revolution, and the main character is a guy called Jean Valjean. He is he's an ex-convict. He's been released on parole. He breaks parole. Uh, he goes and he steals some valuables from a church uh, to try and make a living out of it. And he gets re-arrested. And he thinks, well, this is, this is the end. I'm going back to prison. But then he's, he's released because the bishop who he stole all the valuables from lies to the police and says, no, I gave these to him as a gift. And so Valjean, he gets let go, he uh, has a second chance at life, he, he makes good, he carves out a, success, a successful life for himself. But he always, rem- he always thinks back to that bishop who made his new life possible at his own expense. He lives under grace and he knows it. He knows that he owes everything to someone else. There's another character as well, Inspector Javert. Now, he's a policeman who strictly upholds the law, very letter-of-the-law kind of guy. And he devotes his life to chasing down Valjean and putting him back in prison. Um, But then there's a twist in the story when Valjean saves Javert's life. And Javert is forced to contemplate owing his life to the man who he's hated, the man who he's been setting out to bring down. He's forced to contemplate living under grace. And he can't do it. He can't live with that. He takes his own life. It's a powerful illustration that living under grace doesn't come naturally to us. But at the cross of Jesus, we have to. Because at the cross, our self-righteousness and our self-sufficiency, they both die. Because we recognize our sin and we recognize our need for Jesus. See, if spiritual poverty isn't your starting point, in the Christian walk, if, if you don't know grace, then the Sermon on the Mount is going to break you because its demands simply go beyond us. Everything in the disciples' life, it flows from this spiritual poverty, this knowledge that we can't do it on our own, that we need Jesus. And if I know that I'm a sinner saved by grace alone, then it's going to shape everything else in my life. I'll mourn, verse 4, I'll mourn both the reality and the consequences of my own sin. And not just that, but verse 6, I'll hunger and I'll thirst for righteousness, both for my own personal righteousness, my own personal character, but also for for justice and righteousness in the world around me, to to see God's purposes being realized in the world. See, true repentance, it's, it's not just about grieving 
my sin, but it's about turning away from it as well. So mourning sin and hungering for righteousness. Verse 8, spiritual poverty will overflow into purity of heart. This is about consistency of character. It's about having no hypocrisy in our lives, being the same person on the outside and the inside. So living under grace will change my heart. And it will also change the way that I relate to people. Verse 5, being meek means having a, a true, humble view of myself that's expressed in the way that I treat other people. So not being power-hungry, not seeking my own advantage. Verse 7, being merciful in light of the mercy that's been shown to me. Verse 9, being peacemakers. And when it talks about being peacemakers, it's not talking about being a, being a people-pleaser or, or being a conflict-avoider necessarily. It's talking about doing the hard work of forgiving repenting and reconciling with other people when it's needed. Well, that all sounds easier said than done. So what's the motivation of the disciples' life? What is it that's motivating me to live this sort of life? Well, it's not earthly things like money, success, reputation, but it's kingdom blessings. We read uh, throughout there that... um, Disciples are blessed are those who do this, blessed are those who do this. It's, it's blessing that we're, that we're being told about here. Um, but it's countercultural, isn't it? Because we're not being told to live for things of this world. We're being told to live for something even greater. Disciples of Jesus are blessed because they have these heavenly kingdom rewards. And if you look through it, it's a combination of both present and future blessings, isn't it? notice in in verse 3 and verse 10, we're told theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're members of this kingdom right now. And if we've put our trust in Jesus, then we're members of this kingdom right now. It's It's not something that we wait for to be members of the kingdom, but we are members of the kingdom of heaven now. And we enjoy some of the blessings of that kingdom even now, even if we have to wait for most of them. Uh, so we wait for the comfort and the fulfillment we'll receive when sin is no more. We wait to inherit the earth. We wait to see God in his full glory. These are blessings that Jesus' death and resurrection have secured for us, uh, which one day we'll enjoy forever if our hope is in him. And yet already we begin to enter into some of these blessings, don't we, in the here and now. We see God in part through the eye of faith even if we don't see him face to face yet. Uh, we've been shown mercy already. We, we look back to the cross and we know that we've been shown mercy. We're called children of God already. We have that identity in Jesus that through him we can call God Father. These present and promised blessings, it's what helps disciples of Jesus to endure the persecution that comes our way for following Jesus. Knowing that our reward in heaven is great. And we should expect persecution. Notice there's a a change from the third person to the second person that Jesus uses there in verses 10 to 11. So verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted, uh, turns into verse 11. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when people persecute you. It's something to be expected. And maybe these verses are a reality for you right now. You know that tomorrow when you go to school or to uni or to work or the next family lunch, 
someone's going to give you a hard time for being a Christian. Someone is going to speak evil against you or insult you because you follow Jesus. If that's you, then take heart. Because Jesus says, your trials on earth may be difficult, but your reward in heaven is great if you suffer for following me. Following Jesus won't always be easy. It won't always be immediately rewarding. And so we need to know our need. We need to know our spiritual poverty. And we need to fix our eyes on the heavenly reward that's in store. The disciples' motivation isn't just to have these blessings for ourselves, but it's for other people to have them as well, for other people to have these kingdom blessings. We want to see people saved. And verses 13 to 16 show how this plays out in how our lives intersect with the world around us. Uh, You'll notice there Jesus uses the metaphors of salt, a town on a hill, and a light to illustrate what the disciples' impact ought to be in the world around us. Uh, Salt, you'd be aware, has a very distinctive taste. So you, you bite into a meal and you know right away whether there's too much or too little salt in it. Um, And at that time, like today, salt was also commonly used as a preservative as well. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the life of a disciple of Jesus should preserve what's good in society. To be a noticeable, positive and godly presence. Now, what might that look like? Well, it might mean being the person in your friendship group who people just know not to swear around, or at least the person who doesn't swear back. It might mean being restrained in our speech, not gossiping or or slandering other people, even when we've got people around us who are doing that. Uh, It might mean being self-controlled in how much we drink when we're in those sorts of social situations. Uh, Speaking out respectfully on social issues that go against what the Bible teaches. Um, In short, it's about being different to the culture around us when the culture around us deviates from the way God calls us to live. That's what it means to be salt in the world, to be different to the culture around us when the culture around us deviates from the way God calls us to live. Uh, One of our members at Trinity Church, Earl Gates, retired recently, and I wasn't there, but I'm told that at his retirement dinner, he was praised by a number of his work colleagues, most of whom I take it weren't Christian. He was praised for the difference that he made in transforming the culture of that workplace. Now, if you knew what this guy was like, he's, he's one of the most gentle, thoughtful guys you'll ever meet. It's, you'd know that he didn't transform that culture by brute force or by manipulative politics or anything like that. It was by living out his faith in Jesus, day in, day out, year after year. When Jesus warns us about salt, losing its saltiness and and becoming worthless, I take it that he's talking about a Christian who is just like everyone around them. Someone who would rather take the easy option of blending into the culture rather than challenging the culture or influencing it. Jesus uses the illustrations of the town on the hill and the lamp on a stand to to make the similar point that his disciples are meant to be distinctive. Um, Notice in verse 16, he doesn't say, let your light shine 
so that people may see your good deeds and think that you're a really great person. He doesn't say that, does he? No, the aim is that Jesus' disciples glorify God, which suggests to us that words are needed as well as actions. Now, people have to be able to connect what we do with the God who we worship and the good news that we're living in response to. Now, I think it's a real challenge having this mindset of glorifying God rather than glorifying me. I think, I think that's a real challenge because, let's be honest, we care about how people perceive us. We care a lot about what people think about us. We want people to think highly of us. But here's the thing, right? Nobody, nobody enters the kingdom of heaven and receives the blessings of that kingdom by realizing how great a person I am or how great a person anyone here is. People enter the kingdom of God. They receive these blessings by hearing what Jesus has done for them, by repenting of their sins, receiving the Holy Spirit, putting their faith in Jesus and committing to living for him. The reality, though, is that our good deeds won't always be accepted favorably. Often, the light we shine won't be the light that people want to see. If you stand out from the culture around you and you tell people that you're doing it because of Jesus, I can guarantee you that not every response to that will be positive. Which brings us back, doesn't it, to to verses 11 and 12. Rejoice and be glad, even when you're persecuted and insulted because of me, Jesus says. Great is your reward in heaven. So if you're someone here who has put your faith in Jesus, you've chosen to live for him, who is it that you're on mission to? Who is it in your life that doesn't know Jesus, but they do know you? And is your desire to enjoy that relationship, to preserve that relationship, to benefit from that relationship... Or is it for that person to grasp their spiritual poverty, to know God's grace, to glorify him, to receive all these kingdom blessings? I find that a challenge. I shared a bit about it up the front just before. So so often, I'd much rather take the, the safe, easy route of enjoying a friendship rather than the uncomfortable, risky option of getting Jesus involved in it. But then Jesus doesn't call us to walk the comfortable path, does he? If he did, he would never have preached this sermon. He would have preached a way easier sermon than this one. What might it look like this week for you to be salt and light in the world? To stand out from the world around you in a way that points people to Jesus? If you're a Christian, then you're a disciple of Jesus. And the life of a disciple of Jesus flows from a knowledge of our spiritual need, a deep thankfulness that Jesus met that need, a longing for God's kingdom and his blessings, and a desire for others also to know God, to glorify him, and to enjoy those blessings as well. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we we thank you for this sermon that Jesus preached. We we thank you for the challenges that it gives to us. We, We thank you also that... This is not a sermon that needs to break us with its demands, but one that we can, we can hear and we can acknowledge our spiritual poverty. And we, we do thank you that you didn't leave us in a state of spiritual bankruptcy, 
but that you sent Jesus to die for us. Uh, we, we ask that you would help us to look to the cross, to know our need, but also to know that you've met that need. Please help us to, to live out of that, to live lives of purity, uh, to live lives of thankfulness, to live lives of repentance and growth. And we pray that you would help us to cling to you in spite of persecution and difficult times that might come our way. And we do ask that you would give us a heart for those that don't know you, that you would help us to be salt and light in the world, that you would give us boldness, and that you would bring more people to know you through this church and through every single person here. In Jesus' name, amen.